0: Welcome to the Game Changers podcast, where we connect trending evidence-based pharmacotherapy to your pharmacy and medicine practice. Today, pharmacists Jeff Wall and Troy Lynn Lewis discuss the game-changing benefits of SGL2 inhibitors in patients with heart failure.
1: Hello and welcome again to another episode of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Welcome to the podcast where we try to give you the latest information when it comes to pharmacotherapy, whether that's new studies, uh, stuff from the FDA, new guidelines, whatever it might be. Um, we try to keep our ear to the ground so you don't have to. So uh, we can give you kind of a summary of what's going on uh, when it comes to pharmacotherapy for both providers and pharmacists. Um, if you're a first-time listener, welcome to the podcast. If you're a long-time listener, thanks for uh, keeping along with today. Today we are going to be talking about uh, sgl 2 drugs and um, a study just recently published in New England Journal of Medicine, uh, taking a look at pagaflozin in particular uh, when it comes to uh, treating heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And I know that there's been some some kind of more recent thing. Again, I'm an old man. I kind of remember when all we had was was di- systolic and diastolic heart failure, and um, honestly, not really entirely sure why we went away from that. But uh, um, you know, now of course there's you know ref You have hefpef, and then there's even some more you know uh, different grading of that as they're kind of going down the line. But we're going to focus on HEFPEF. and to help me do that, um, I'd like to welcome Dr. Troy Lynn Lewis, Assistant Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Wilkes University and an ambulatory care pharmacist and expert in this field. So Dr. Lewis, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to get to talk about some of these things
1: today. Terrific. And so, yeah, so uh, we really appreciate uh, you coming along and, and, and giving us your expertise. Um, so before we do that, we're gonna talk a little bit about the study. It was, it was the DELIVER study. And um, again, you know, a historical background, you know, I, I'm an old man. So I remember when I first came out of school, again, all we had was kind of systolic and diastolic heart failure. We hadn't really seen the explosion of diastolic heart failure that we've seen in the last 10 or 15 years, uh, because I, yeah, as you know, the, the big predicator of pest HF-PEF is, of course, hypertension, and so as the hypertension uh, incidence is dramatically risen in the United States, so has the development of HF-PEF. And so when I came out, you know, you yeah, had systolic and diastolic heart failure, and even back then, back in the Stone Age, we knew that to give ACE inhibitors and beta blockers and stuff like that for HF-REF, but we really didn't have any good ways to treat heart failure through the rejection fraction. We tried to slow the heart rate down with diltiazim and verapamil, and that didn't seem to do anything. Uh, we tried to say, well, we just need to diurese these patients, and, you know, yeah, that helped with some of the symptoms, but it didn't really help improve mortality or hospitalizations. Um, and they tried all sorts of other things and, and nothing really seemed to give anything. There was a little blip, a little, a little light on the end of the tunnel as far as, as benefit in the charm preserve study that was done in the early 2000s, but it, but it really wasn't a very good benefit. It was this kind of minimal benefit, but that was really it. And I used to say back before these drugs came out that, I mean, if you really wanted to practice evidence-based medicine and treat hep the only data we had was with cancer. And so, you know, and that was a minimal benefit of that. So, you know, uh, you know, to find out that the sgl two drugs actually have a role in this is is, is pretty not to uh, belabor the point, game changing, which is why it's on this podcast. So, again, we're going to talk about the DELIVER study. Um, again, as we know, you know, again, there's few pharmacologic treatment options as we've just said in patients who have preserved ejection fraction or mildly reduced ejection fraction. Uh, just last year, empagliflozin uh, was shown to reduce the combined risk of hospitalization for heart Failure and cardiovascular death among patients with heart failure and a left EF of greater than 40%. Um, and so again, this was, I think, pretty exciting. I know I know, most of the people I knew in this in this space were, were pretty happy that they were actually able to, to do something evidence-based for the treatment of preserved ejection fraction. And so that was kind of cool, but but uh, the study that that took a look at this, there were some, some concerns. The first being is that there didn't seem to be a benefit in patients who had higher ejection fractions, but still symptoms of heart failure. Um, they also uh, wanted to know if we started these medications inpatient, which I think is is something that we got to start thinking about doing more and more for continuity of care, where did they still see that benefit? And what if patients, when they were first diagnosed with heart failure, had an EF less than forty percent, but we you know tuned them up, we got them on diuretics, we got them on beta blockers, we got them on ACE inhibitors, and we found that it improved to more than forty percent over time. Is the benefit still going to be there? So kind of to answer all those questions, and I think frankly to see if if you know that that there was some hint that that uh, that uh, using sglt 2 drugs in this patient population was more of a, of a class effect versus a single drug effect the deliver study was 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 published again just recently in new england journal of medicine it was a phase three international multi-center parallel group evidence driven double blind randomized control trial try and say that fast five times in which uh, they looked at patients with chronic heart failure symptoms and an ef of more than 40 percent um and and they basically were going to use the or placebo in addition to the regular therapy they included patients if they 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 were over age 40, had stabilized heart failure with or without type two diabetes. Obviously, we already know these drugs are beneficial in patients with diabetes and had an an EF of more than 40%. They had to have evidence of structural heart disease and an elevated uh, BNP. Uh, Patients who had uh, a previous left ventricular EF of less than 40% were eligible as long as when they did their echo at baseline, it was more than 40% basically. And importantly, there was an outpatient and inpatient phase of this. So you could either be started on this drug, uh, in the clinic or you could be started in this drug after a hospitalization for heart failure so i think that again that helps to answer one of the questions we're trying to deal with here so uh the the uh, strata of the study and the methods was pretty simple they basically randomized these patients to a dose of dapagliflozin 10 milligrams once daily or matching placebo in addition to their usual uh, therapy so i mean wasn't very complex there at all uh, the inclusion exclusion criteria was actually fairly simple for a large cardiovascular study, so that was kind of nice to see. The primary outcome was a composite of worsening heart failure, which was defined as either an unplanned hospitalization for heart failure or an urgent visit for heart failure or cardiovascular death. One of those things is not like the others, obviously. Uh, Secondary outcomes were the total number of worsening heart failure events and cardiovascular deaths. They also looked at the Kansas City cardiomyopathy questionnaire, which is kind of recognized as one of the standard questionnaires look at quality of life in patients with heart failure. And of course they looked at death from any cause Cause. These were though, and those were all secondary outcomes. Stats were pretty again, pretty straightforward. Um, not a lot of weirdness or unusual tests done. As you might imagine, this was a time to event analysis, so they used Cox proportional hazards and they used Kaplan-Meier plots to kind of figure all that stuff out. Um, they also did kind of a, a stratification analysis, taking a look at uh, whether patients had diabetes or not. And since, of course, this was done during the COVID pandemic, they also did another analysis trying to account for uh, patients who did and did not have COVID. So I think that's something we're going. To probably see for the next 10 years when studies come out um uh, they did do when they did look at the secondary analysis this was, was done by a closed testing procedure that was hierarchical so basically if the first secondary uh, outcome was found to be positive and they moved on to the second one and the second third one fourth one of all the secondary outcomes again that's something that's pretty standard now in, in cardiovascular studies as, as we kind of see them and of course it was an intention to treat analysis so what did they find in, in the study um, well, there were 6,263 uh, 6, patients uh, who were actually enrolled in the trial. Um, ages, uh, mean age was about 72 in these patients. About half of them were, were female. Um, uh, the study was done mostly in Belgium, though it was done in, in other countries as well. So it's it probably not a surprise that, that the majority of patients were Caucasian and about 20% of patients were, were Asian. Uh, but again, Europe or uh, was the, the big place where, where the study was done. As far as the patients themselves, the almost the vast majority of these patients had, had New heart association class two or three. So I mean, and most actually at two. So again, I think you'd say these people had kind of mild heart failure symptoms. Their mean uh, EF was 54%. So definitely above that 40%. And um, it was kind of spread all over the place. So if you you take a look at 50 to 60%, uh, they did uh, quartiles of 49, 50 to 59 and 60% and it was spread pretty evenly across it. About half the patients had hypertension um, and about 88% of them, again, not surprising given this population uh, had, uh, uh, had hypertension. And again, As as we know, that's one of the big risk factors for developing that. So what did they find? Well, in the results, the primary outcome, again, that composite outcome of of, uh, heart failure that either required hospitalization or or being seen by a doctor or cardiovascular death occurred in 16.4% of the Pagaflows in patients versus 19.5% of patients in the placebo group. Uh, This was statistically significant with a hazard ratio of 0.73 to 0.92. When they broke down the analysis into the individual components, uh, this was driven mostly by the first two, it was driven mostly by by heart failure hospitalizations or, or urgent need to see f- a failure. It was it was less. Uh, it wasn't statistically significant in, in the cardiovascular death. But it doesn't matter if you take a look at the overall ratio. It, the number needed to treat was only 33. If you take a look at those percentages, so again a pretty a pretty decent primary outcome result there. Um, the, uh, they uh, they broke this down like all these studies do, and in, into different subgroups. And of course, the thing you always remember in these subgroups is that they're usually not powered to show a difference because they're using such a small segment of the overall population. But uh, the primary outcome was favored in the flows group over in the overall population. And all the ways they different sliced and diced these patients, whether they, how old they were, whether they had diabetes or not, if they had atrial fibrillation or not, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They found basically that they they may have not reached statistical significance, but they all seem to fav- favor the pagiflous in in uh, the Forest plot that was that was taking a look at that again. A, a cardiovascular death was not statistically significant, so this was driven mostly by worsening heart failure. Uh, but again, maybe may underpowered to show that. Um, again, six thousand patients is relatively small for a cardiovascular study, so it just may not have had the power to show a difference. But again, if you take a look at the forest plot in the in the paper, it did seem to favor that. It was uh, as I said, the primary outcome was consistent across all subgroups, um, and again, including patients who had diabetes. Uh, Interesting when they took a look at patients who had been hospitalized within the last. Three 30 days. So again, where the drug could have been initiated in an inpatient setting, uh, they also found pretty much the same benefit showing that if you can, if, if for continuity of care, and of course, the, you know, that's going to be the big thing is how do we make sure that they can afford this medication when they get discharged? Uh, it seems reasonable to start these drugs in patients who have been hospitalized within the last 30 days for, for heart failure and a, and a, a percentage of patients actually got started in an inpatient setting, basically. Uh, secondary outcomes uh, were, were overall beneficial, uh, particularly the the Kansas City questionnaire, uh, they did find an improvement in in, in symptoms from that, so that's pretty good. Uh, Most of the other outcomes uh, were not statistically significant, but it did seem to improve symptoms as well. Uh, there was kind of, I, I will say that if there's a strike to the study, they have kind of short shrift, I think, to, to adverse effects. Um, they note, I think, good that uh, that there was actually no uh, serious adverse effects that were uh, there were, but the percentages were, were not different between the group, and in fact, it was slightly lower in the topagaflozin group. Um, um, but uh, of course, you want to take a look at, at specific adverse effects of the STL-2 drugs. They did not find a difference in amputations, foreigners, gangrene, things along those lines, uh, but they didn't really comment in, in the uh, in the text about more common side effects of these drugs such as urinary tract infections, general urinary infections, or, or euglycemic DKA, which we've been my hospital, we've definitely seen several times in the last couple of years. So, you know, the the, the authors basically, you know, you know, in their discussion point out that again, this 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 lead, this gives us some pretty good information about using the STL2 drugs in patients with HEF PEF. And you know, it, it, there does seem to be a, a, an added benefit, especially in keeping people out of the hospital or having worsening heart failure and improving symptoms and so I think that's all a good thing. Again, the study may have been underpowered to show to show mortality benefits, but again, that doesn't mean that that there isn't any. It just means that that the number of patients in the study, you know, just may not have had enough to reach statistical significance. Um, you know, they note that you know that patients were on the whole adherent to the to, to the regimen. Their overall adherence rate was actually pretty high in the study, um, and they you know basically say that you know ba- based on this, it seems reasonable that dapagliflozin can also be used in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction that you can start them uh, as inpatients or outpatients, whether they have diabetes or not diabetes. And It'll be very interesting to see, you know, what will the major organizational groups do with this data now that we have two studies, you know, um, I think it's, it's probably a little bit past due that the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association kind of comes up with updated guidelines. They may even decide to do dedicated guidelines to um, um, heart failure with deserved rejection fraction, which has never really existed before because now we actually can do something with it. So it'll be very interesting to see what major uh, guidelines groups decide to do with this and will it be part of the uh, uh, evidence-based uh, goal-directed therapy that again we're, we're very comfortable with in using in patients with half ref right we know exactly what to do in those patients but now i think we can move toward perhaps uh, a goal-directed therapy in patients with half pathadol as, as well so you know that's all great and again i think the study was overall well done but i mean the questions are you know you know what are some of the issues with the study uh, how do we operationalize this and again we're, we're very fortunate to have dr lewis with us who is going to give us her uh, expert opinion on on this and, and we're going to discuss that right after this word from CE Impact.
0: Are you a CE Impact member? Members get exclusive access to new courses and CE for this podcast. Over 62 hours of new CE each year, plus access to hundreds more on demand. Go to CEImpact.com to become a member today.
1: All right, so we are back uh, talking about the liver study and using STL-2 drugs in uh, uh, patients with heart failure, with preserved ejection fraction. Again, I'd like to welcome back Dr. Troy Lynn Lewis to the podcast. Again, welcome.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Really appreciate you uh, giving us your experience. So what did you think of the liver study? What, what, do you, what do you think were kind of the pros and cons of it and your overall opinion?
2: Yeah, for sure. So I think to this date that this is the largest trial that we have right now, examining these cardiovascular outcomes in our patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, and now we're moving into this new language, with heart failure with mildly reduced ejection fraction. Um, I think this like further gives us the evidence to support the use of our SGLT2 inhibitors as part of that essential therapy in our patients with heart failure, regardless of the presence or absence of diabetes, and also across different ejection fractions. I know that recently, the Emperor Preserve trial, when that came out, there was some, you know, controversy and limitations because the results appeared to be attenuated in patients with ejection fractions in the higher part of the range, which is about greater than or equal to 65%. When we have this DELIVER trial here, they completed analyses among patients with ejection fraction greater than or equal to sixty percent and less than sixty percent, and they showed no attenuation of benefit. So I feel like that's something that's additional that we're getting from here. Mm-hmm. And I think you know you mentioned too about our subgroup analyses and how they're usually not powered enough. Um, I know that recently published um, at the end of August of this year, there was a pre-specified pooled analysis. And you know, with these pooled analyses, we can evaluate key components of these trials that required more power than provided by individual trials. So we can cover a full range of ejection fractions. So in this pooled analysis, it took the DAPA-HF, which looked at dipagliflozin, in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and the DELIVER trial. And we had a total of about 11,000 participants. So in this pooled um, analysis, we saw that this attenuation of benefit, we did not see that regardless of the ejection fraction. So once again, showing us that dapagliflozin truly has that benefit for patients with an ejection fraction less than 60% and greater than or equal to 60%. And I know that you also alluded to as well is that talking about heart failure with improved ejection fraction. So these newer guidelines are new 2022 American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, the Heart Failure Society of American Guidelines. They are truly emphasizing change and ejection fraction might not be unidirectional. So they're really focusing on that trajectory. So a patient may have improvement, Followed by a decrease in injection fraction and vice versa, depending on underlying cause, duration of the disease, their adherence to medications, um, if they're re exposed to a cardiotoxin. They're truly emphasizing that if you measure an ejection fraction at one point in time, it may not be adequate. And instead, the trajectory of your ejection fraction over time and the cause of heart failure is important. So that's why we have those new categories as heart failure with mildly reduced and heart failure with improved, improved ejection fraction. And as you mentioned, this Deliver trial studied those patients who previously had an ejection fraction less than 40%, and we saw a positive benefit. So I really think that that's, you know, we're moving in that direction a little bit more looking at this trajectory. That's emphasized in the guidelines, and that's another one of those those pros that we get from this trial.
1: Right, um, and so I, you know, I guess I guess a, a good follow up question to that then is, you know, you know, does does this does this make you know make the case for a class effect in these medications because as you point out you know the emperor preserve study didn't seem to see this so i mean now if you get the choice and again if an insurance company is making the choice for for you which is probably going to happen most of the time you know if would you preferentially pick the paga and if the patient's last ejection fraction was say 62 percent or would you say it oh, probably doesn't matter or what what would you do there do you think?
2: Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting question. And I actually was recently talking about this at my practice site with some of the physicians, especially due to you know the attenuation of benefits. What's going on with these different ranges in ejection fraction? And just as there was a pooled meta analysis of patients with um, dapagliflozin, there was also one for patients with empagliflozin. So they. Looked at both the emperor reduced, which has got apagliflozin in patients with HEP breath, and the emperor preserved, which was apagliflozin in patients with HEP PEF and that mildly reduced ejection fraction. And once again, even in this pooled analyses, we do indeed see that attenuation of benefit there as mm. well. And that included about 10,000 patients. So once again, providing us a little bit more power than we have with each of those individual trials. But that doesn't go without saying that even in the pooled analysis um, that we see in our patients uh, in the dapagliflozin looking at the DELIVER plus the DAPA-HF trial, we are. it's important to note that those pooled analysis, the absolute risk reduction is smaller in patients with higher ejection fraction compared to lower ejection fraction. It's still beneficial, but not as strong as a risk reduction as we're seeing with our patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. So, okay. you know, really splitting the hairs between the two of them, um, I know that we, we did see that attenuation of benefit with our empagliflozin. So I would say in our patients currently right now, we have stronger evidence for mildly reduced ejection fraction, preserved ejection fraction to use dapagliflozin, not only based on this trial, the DAPA-HF trial, but also this pooled analysis that gives us a little bit more power than just our subgroup analyses that can, you know, result in false positives, sure. the multiple comparisons, false negatives because of the inadequate power that we have
1: right uh, I mean that's I, that, that's a good point and I mean of course you know is anyone who's 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 worked for a while I mean you know you know echocardiography of course isn't isn't as accurate always as we'd like it to be and and so yeah I mean I think I think you're right I think I think you know uh, trying to get a look at, at at trends as opposed to it was 62 percent you know a year ago in their echo now it's you know 48 percent you know and just saying okay I you mean know, I don't know if the numbers make all that much of a difference but the, the fact is, is their their ejection fraction is declining they're probably having left ventricular failure at that point so I, I think that's I think it's a real good point. So then, I think the next issue, again, as I've said, we have really struggled here in in my area to get patients on these medications, um, especially in the inpatient setting. uh, When I'll make a recommendation on my medicine service, you know, saying, "Well, you know, we got someone in with with uh, you know heart failure exacerbation, and they're only on a beta blocker and and an ARB." You know, I'm I'm like, "Well, you know, goal directed therapy would say, you know, you know, we need entresto, we need we need to consider you know SGLT two drugs," and I always get the same. Well, they're never going to be able to look for that as an outpatient. So why are we even going to start it as an inpatient? And I think you know this study you know can at least bolster the argument that you know starting as an inpatient is still beneficial to patients. But you know, in your practice, Dr. Lewis, how how are you getting, are you are you you're probably more successful than we are, but I mean how are you successful in, in getting these patients to goal directed therapy and, and what tricks are you using to do that?
2: Yeah, for sure. I think truly ensuring proper education and monitoring and asking ourselves, are our patients appropriate candidates? And that can be things clinical characteristics we're considering and also financial considerations, as you mentioned. So as pharmacists, making sure we're dotting our I's and crossing our T's because it's important to know that these medications don't come without risks. Our patients need to know and understand these risks. And also, if we prescribe these medications, recommend these medications, can our patients obtain them in the outpatient setting? I know that a biggest thing that we do is always ensuring our patients have no contraindications to therapy and also being cautious of any associated warnings. So I know that you mentioned things like mycotic genital infections, UTI, pyelonephritis. So cautioning use in our patients with recurrent UTI and yeast infections, you know, there's the risk of hypotension and due to the intravascular intravascular volume depletion that we see. So causing use in our patients with renal impairment, are elderly, patients who are on other antihypertensive medications, which we know are a majority of our heart failure medications, they lower right. blood pressure. And you mentioned, you know, you glycemic DKA and any risk factor where a patient has an extremely stressful event, surgery, infection, illness, COVID-19, um, you know, extensive exercise, caloric restriction, uh, alcohol abuse, making sure that patients, you know, understand that understand these risks, these warnings, and especially that our physicians know and understand them as well. I know that, you know, there's some scary warnings and precautions. And then there's ones that are things that we can expect in educating the patient and saying, These are things we can expect, and these are things that are super scary, they're rare, but we're going to educate you on them and and counsel you on them to make sure you know what to do, and you're reporting any signs or symptoms, and you understand these signs and symptoms, and making sure our clinicians know that, you know, as pharmacists, we're monitoring these things, and we wouldn't recommend a medication if the benefits did not outweigh the risks. That being said, I know you mentioned things such as um, cost in the outpatient setting. Can patients afford it? Um, And that's definitely a really, a really big factor. I've been seeing more in the recent years, more coverage of these agents specifically due to their, you know, multiple indications, you know, diabetes or heart failure, CKD. Um, I, I think the biggest thing is for our commercially insured patients, If the copay is high, we do. There is a copay card for commercially insured patients. With our Medicare patients, we have to be cautious when it comes to um, the donut hole or the medical gap sometimes. There are patient assistance programs from manufacturers that I do help patients with at my clinic. Um, I work in a federally qualified healthcare center lookalike. So we help patients a lot of the times um, filing patient assistant programs. I am grateful, too, that I'm part of a 340B clinic. So yeah, that helps. If that, if that helps
1: mm-hmm.
2: a lot. Yep. So we get a lot of assistance there. But, you know, truly, sometimes it is difficult having those conversations with some physicians um, and patients as well, really saying these are new medications. They, they do come with risks, but here are the benefits. Here's the data that we're getting and, and really trying to change that mentality that these aren't just diabetes medications.
1: Right, no, I agree, and and I mean the joke I always make on uh, on my services is that once these you know the, that that two drugs are basically the statins of the twenty first century. That when they when they become generic, everybody's going to be on them, you know, because they just seem they seem to have so many benefits across the board. So, I was going to ask, you know, is, uh, you know something that in the, in the rare cases I've gotten people to get to start them here in in in, in, the in the inpatient setting, I am having them hold their their diuretics for a day or two, you know, until we kind of figure out what's going on, because I mean I I read where people will get you know the early you will get. you know, too dehydrated because of the additive diuresis with, with the STL2 drugs. How are you guys approaching that in the outpatient setting?
2: Yep, yeah, very similarly, making sure that our patients are stable as well um, is a big thing. But yeah, exactly, exactly what you said.
1: Okay. Excellent. So, so any other points or tips? You know, I mean, you know, you're right. And unfortunately, it's it's going to be the Medicare population, of course, that is going to be the, the the highest group of these patients. And as it stands now, of course, they they don't qualify for a lot of these, you know, patient insurance programs, and and they're you know, and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, yeah, you know, like I said, we've really struggled. And and sometimes I just think it's 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 the path of least resistance for my hospitals where they just say, well, what's the point of even starting when they're never going to be able to afford it in the first place? And you know, you're right. I think I think we. Need to say well no there are pathways to affordability um they're not easy you know but but if if we can if we can get them started you know many of our clinics here in the central iowa area and, and my particular health system actually have assigned mtm pharmacists and and that's you know that's their job and and i think they do a much better job than i think a lot of my hospitals think about getting people on expensive medications that have, have proven benefits so um you know like i said I, I agree with you that that i think i just you know we, we need to do a better job of educating not only patients but i think providers because i just don't think in a lot of cases they've read vaguely that yeah these drugs are beneficial in, in heart failure but to see the especially in half ref to see the big benefit it's, it's it's pretty impressive so yeah okay excellent so uh, any other points or questions or issues you'd like to talk about this the paper or anything no no okay all right excellent well uh, thank you very much dr Lewis. we appreciate you taking your time and, and your expertise uh if we have other uh, uh uh cardiovascular stuff we'd love to invite you back on for for for, for more of your expertise if so that'd be okay Yeah, for sure. Thank you guys so much. It's been great. Terrific. Well, I appreciate you being on again. So that's it for this episode of uh, Game Changers. Again, thank you for listening. Uh, Hit that like button, hit the subscribe button. But again, head over to CEimpact.com. Maybe sign up for some CE and help us keep the lights on, help us keep this podcast going. We will see you next week. But until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care.
0: Information to claim your CE credit is in the show notes. Please subscribe for all episodes. And if you love game changers, give us a review. Tune in next week for another clinical practice game changer.